With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, I have with me Gar Hurst. Gar is a partner at the law firm of Givens & Johnston. We take a look at the biggest import control issue you have never heard of, which is wood packaging violations. Though it's a little bit outside ABC compliance, there's lots of lessons for the compliance practitioner. I know you'll enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and we go in a very different direction today as I have my good friend and colleague, Gar Hurst uh, from Johnson & Givens, uh, to talk about wood packaging violations. You may wonder what that has to do with the FCPA. Well, at the end of this podcast, you will know the answer to that. So, Gar, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, first of all, welcome. I'm glad I finally got you on the podcast, and thanks for taking the time to visit with me. Well, uh, thanks for having me on. Um, and you're right; it, it doesn't. It, it has a very tangential uh, connection to F- FCPA, but and and we will go there. But uh, for the most part, this is just another huge mess that uh, companies find themselves in. So um, that I've, I've actually had the privilege, if you want to call it that, of working on the last few years. Um, so anyway, so maybe you could. Start off by telling us a little bit about the nature of your practice, okay. uh, and then we're going to tie that into some compliance issues. But uh, uh, how did you get to where you do now? I graduated from law school about 20 years ago and started out writing patents and found out that I really did not like doing that. And I floated around for a while, and eventually I became a customs broker and worked as a customs broker for about two and a half years. <laughs> And then I um, then I joined the firm of Givens and Johnston in Houston, and Givens and Johnston is a boutique um, customs and international trade firm. Our bread and butter is you know working with importers and exporters um, who run into all sorts of issues with uh, the government, and uh, this was one of the issues that just started popping up about three years ago and has really, really hurt a lot of people. Well, Gar, I think uh, many of my listeners are certainly aware of export controls. They were aware of export sanctions. Uh, they have some uh, familiarity with that from a compliance perspective, but you really focus on import. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the nature of that practice. What do you do? How do you represent clients? Uh, who do you go in front of, et cetera? Yeah, so we do a lot of we do a lot of export work, but most of our most of my work is import related. Um, most of it involves virtually all of that involves U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Uh, 
a lot of it involves uh, a biggest chunk of it probably involves uh, making sure that people are paying the correct amount of customs duties. Um, and when they don't helping them sort that out in the least painful way possible, um, that involves filing prior disclosures and dealing with penalties and, uh, and then avoiding problems ahead of time, you know, with compliant, with, uh, classic, with rulings and giving classification advice and whatnot. Um, but one of the functions that customs serves is they are basically the policemen for virtually every other uh, federal agency that ever has had anything to say about an importation of, at all. Uh, FDA, USDA, DOT, EPA, you name it. They all have a bunch of rules about imports, but they all, but CBP is basically the cop that enforces all these other agency rules. And the wood packing material violations uh, stem from that. Uh, the rules are really made by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And what they're really about is they're really designed to protect uh, the U.S. forests. Um, the the what the basically what they're what they're designed to do is they're designed to stop wood boring pests that uh, find that, that are in, involved in that I mean that are inside of wood and packing material and uh, the there's a certain set of treatments that are supposed to be performed on wood packing material now as a part of an international convention that the U.S. joined about 15 years ago and. Um, that is, and and by and their goal is to stop it from coming in. And if it does get through, if you violate those rules, but primarily because they find a live pest, then they really lower the boom on you because they really take protecting these forests seriously. I think when most people think of wood packaging, they're going to think of lumber, but it's really much broader than that. Can you tell us what's covered by? Wood packaging regulations? Uh, it's anything, one, that's not cargo, merchandise. It's not merchandise. Um, but it could be bins, boxes, bracing, uh, crates, cases, pallets, skids. It could be dunnage. It could be if you have big metal pieces, sometimes they stick a little piece of wood in between the metal pieces to keep them from rubbing together. It includes that. It's any piece of solid wood that is included with a foreign shipment. Now, what is excluded from that list um, are some, or what you might think of as manufactured wood, um, uh, plywood, particle board, oriented strand board, a bunch of things like this. And the theory is, is that uh, whatever boring insects might be inside there will never survive uh, a particle board treatment. They'll just be ground to dust. So that that is not covered. Sawdust, wood shavings, whatever. They call it wood wool. I don't even know what that is. But that's one of the things that's, that's outside the scope of those regulations. Are you mentioned treatments. Could you maybe uh, talk us through treatments, how they relate to this issue? 
every country in the world that has signed on to this treatment, which is the uh, it's uh, the, this protocol, the the ISPM fifteen treatment, which is um, international. Well, I can't think of the name right off the top of my head. Um, the ISPM fifteen treatment, they they have all agreed that whenever they export wood from their country, it will have undergone either a heat treatment process or a fumigation process designed to kill these wood boring insects. And in the process, and, and in the process of the after this treatment is done, they then that that the the exporters are then allowed to stamp uh, a a certain marking, which is in the materials that I sent to you. It's a it's a very uh, distinct marking that tells what country it's from, what type of treatment it is, and who the treat the 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 company that actually treated it was. Uh, but they put those they put that stamp on all the wood packing material. Uh, when it comes to the U.S. or goes to any country, uh, and so all the all the countries that are a part of this convention have essentially agreed that if uh, wood pack material has this stamp, um, it is presumed to be properly treated and pest free. So, what are some of the pests that uh, are trying to keep out, or is it a family of pests? And how does that relate to the treatment and then to the products you've talked about that are subject to this regulation? There's really about eight different uh, families of insects that are um, excluded. And if you look in the regulation, we did a very, we got into some litigation about this two years ago, and we did a really deep dive into the regulations. And even though a lot of times they will uh, name individual pests by genus and species, it re- they really have the authority to exclude pests all the way up to a family level. And uh, the, the list that I have is uh, longhorn beetles, uh, wood wa- longhorn beetles and wood wasps are the two most common uh, insect pests that we see. Um, and this has been a, and I'm in Houston and this has been a huge issue in the Houston area, uh, bigger than most. In fact, that's, it's been the, probably the, the, the worst affected port in the country. Um, largely because the officers here are just really good at finding them. (laughs) But, um, yeah, so there's a bunch of the bark beetles, what they call clear wing moss, Pinhole bar, uh, borers, bark weevils, carpenter moss, leopard moss, and one they call metallic beetles. So, just a whole bunch of these. And what happens, Tom, is that these the life cycle of these insects is that uh, the adult will the adult insect will um, find a live tree over in Europe or Asia or wherever. They'll bore in a little bit, plant an egg. That egg hatches. And there's a larva that then lives inside that tree for several years. Uh, and it will, it eats, basically eats the tree to survive for several years. And in the process, it leaves what they call, uh, I think they call them cathedrals, or basically they're tunnels through the uh, tree. And that has the process of uh, making the, harming the tree and weakening the wood. 
and it basically makes and, and it and it and it can actually devastate forests in some instances. Uh, and let me pick up on a point you raised, which is about the inspectors. How do they determine uh, the, any of these insects are present? Is it a physical inspection? If it is a physical inspection, what can be a violation if uh, insects are found present? That's where the rubber really hits the road, Tom, and that's where it gets really harsh for importers. So um, you're an importer. Let's say you're an importer from Germany, and uh, you send over your cargo, and it's got some wood on it. And uh, what they'll what the there's basically there there's some agriculture inspectors that work for customs, and they're just riding around, uh, you know snooping around the ports all day and they'll go and look at a, a shipment and they go and they look for wood. They, there are some kind of telltale signs of, of what, of what, um, of what, uh, of, of these pests being there. And even if the wood's treated, they start looking for these telltale signs and then they just, they'll, they, if they think they see one, they just kind of pry the wood open. And if they find, uh, a live insect, which they do, then they'll will, then they pull it out, and the presumption at that point is that it's one of these prohibited pests. I mean, because clearly it's bored into wood, um, and then what they do is they will take this pest, uh, they document it, and they issue uh, an emergency action notice, telling you, you know, kind of putting you on notice that you've got a real problem. But then they get the pest and they send it to an, a USDA lab, <clears throat> and the USDA has uh, staff has their own staff, which then um, confirms that these are in fact um, pests of concern. But is this the point where you get a phone call that a client's been issued an emergency action notice and they need your services sort of immediately? Typically, yeah. Uh, typically, they they issue the customs will issue these emergency action notices. Uh, it usually will go to the customs broker, their customs broker first. Custom broker passes it on to um, the importer. The, the, and, and the customs broker at this point knows, hey, you got a real problem. You need to call someone in the Houston area. A lot of a lot of people have started calling me just because. Um, I've handled more of this than probably anyone in the country at this point. Um, but what happens is the the first thing that customs will insist that be done is that they do is that the importer do a um, a protective uh, uh, that they that they basically tarp uh, put a tarp over the over all the cargo. Well, that's easy enough if you're talking about. Um, you know, a, a container load of stuff. You know, you 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 hire a fumigator. The fumigator comes out with this plastic, and they basically get some plastic and cover everything over and weight it down. But where where this really gets tough, Tom, is in Houston. They've they've not only been going after the container ports, they've been going after the project cargo. You know, the big shipment that comes off the general. Uh, the the break bulk ship and may have you know we had one in 2018 that had 400 pieces 
400 pieces of cargo is worth nearly $40 million. They found really two bugs and ordered us to export the whole shipment. Um, and that is really a nightmare situation. In that case, I mean, I, it cost, I think it cost my client millions of dollars um, because they found these insects in, in their, uh, in their cargo. I mean, and we had to do all sorts of crazy things to, um, remedy the situation as well. Let me pick up on a term or ask you to define a term you used and that's called exportation. What does that mean in the context of trying to remedy an emergency action notice? In this con, well, that's a good question. Export can mean a lot of different things depending on the context. In this context, it means, uh, get it out of the United States. Um, and at this point, when, when we first started seeing these initially, they said we could not send them to Canada or Mexico. And we weren't really sure where they were coming up with this restriction. Um, it wasn't clear to us. I mean, obviously there was some concern that they'd find their way back in the United States, but we thought maybe it was a NAFTA prohibition, Well, we were never really sure. But in the final analysis, it was just something they just – it was a knee-jerk reaction. So at this point, customs line, at least in the Port of Houston, is we don't care where you send it. You can't – you just can't stay here. Kind of, kind of the old uh, bar line, you know. Don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. So After exportation, is there fumigation? Is there repackaging? Is there some at- attempt to save the cargo and reintroduce it to the Port of Houston as an import, or is the cargo just – now it's it's uh, valueless in the United States. The cargo, when they force you to export the wood packaging material, the the problem that you have is they don't allow fumigation here in the United States. They don't allow any remedy in the United States. Essentially, they don't allow what what in customs lingo is a manipulation, where you can just you know open up the crate and take the cargo out and then ship out the car the, the wood crate. They don't have anything like a uh, – they don't allow a fumigation in the United States. So you have to ship the crate, the, the wood packing trail, and the cargo out of the country. Once you're out of the country, um, you, you know, you're, you're basically uh, subject to the laws of those foreign countries. Um, for what it's worth, you could also theoretically do this in international waters. Um, we've just never really found – a situation where that was practical. It seems to me that there's uh, a remediation cost, which is to ship it out, get it fumigated, repackage. Are there also fines and penalties that can be levied against an importer as well? There is. There is. And they, they have issued penalties up to, basically the value of the cargo. So in the one case I was telling you about up to $40 million. Now, since that has come out, they have uh, customs has issued mitigation guidelines uh, where they can knock that down to between one and 10% of the value of the cargo. Uh, And that seems to be the most common way of dealing with it. Um, And then there are other defenses we can make. Um, uh, one thing, and I, actually one thing I, I forgot to mention, one, one thing that one bit of success we have had in keeping things from being exported is sometimes, especially in the project cargo realm, some pieces don't have any wood. Uh, 
So, for example, let's say you're talking about a giant uh, uh, reactor vessel. Okay, in Houston, in the Houston area, we get giant pieces of cargo coming in all the time, uh, and the giant piece of reactor vessel, uh, maybe you know, two hundred tons or something like this, and it doesn't have any wood anywhere near it, but it may have uh, railings and staircases and struts and all sorts of ancillary equipment, and that's in the car- that cargo is held in a is packaged in wood. One of the one one big success we've had is we've been able to get it. We've been able to um, uh, get customs to separate a bill of lading so that if you have some pieces of cargo that don't have any wood on them, uh, they don't have to be exported. And when you start talking about making emergency logistics operations for, you know, really huge shipments, I mean, shipments that even with time and planning maybe took a million dollars. Um, you know, if you can suddenly take the biggest, most difficult pieces, most difficult to handle pieces out of the equation, you can really save a lot of money. Um, but, it, but back to the penalty question, sorry for the diversion, but, um, as, as for the penalties, yeah, we that is something that we've had a we've had instances we've had a couple opportunities to defend, and they have uh, been mitigating them down to between one and ten percent for a first violation. After that, I believe it's uh, twenty, uh, like uh, ten to twenty five percent is the mitigation. Um, there's uh, also. There is there was one unpublished decision where uh, customs decided that it would be the value of the packing itself and not the cargo that would be uh, the basis for the penalty. But I'm not sure if that's going to be applied across the board. One of the things in my world is obviously a compliance program to prevent a violation from occurring. Are there any steps a company, an importer, uh, can take to help prevent uh, having this type of violation? Or or do you counsel companies along those lines to help uh, prevent a problem from actually becoming a violation? It's, as I said in my, as I put in my, uh, the title of my, of the presentation I gave to you, it's really the biggest problem no one's ever heard of. I mean, everyone knows that there's a stamp, but no one really knows what it means. And, the problem you got is uh, it's never a problem until it is, and then the, the so what you, what an imp, what an exporter needs to do is they need to really inspect this wood packaging material as though as, as they need to have a compliance program for that, just like they have for everything else in the world. Uh, they need to inspect it. They need to audit it. They need to have uh, a term in their contract with the export packer. Saying, look, if we get if we get uh, ejected from if we get denied entry into a foreign country or get hit with a penalty because of your wood packing material, you got to indemnify us for it. Um, and one thing that complicates that uh, in that is complicated thing that so far for exports to the United States is that U.S. Customs and the USDA have been. You wouldn't think it, but they have been almost 
terribly unwilling to hand over evidence that they actually found the bug. And then what ends up happening is the European exporter, they're trying to sue their packer, and the and, and they go to the European court, and the European court says, well, show me, their, show me a picture of this bug. Well, it, then you have to go through a FOIA process, a Privacy Act process, and they'll take nine months to turn around and give you some pictures. And they may have one photo of the thing. It's it, it, it and when you and, and even though we've told customs of this problem and how really they could if they would just hand this information over to us, we would hand it over to our client who would then go sue these these wood packages for some reason. They just don't want to do it. They just you know, they don't see that as their job. And it's go figure government. <laughs> so, Gary, is there a particular reason this controversy or problem is centered in the port of Houston as opposed to perhaps other ports in in the South or even in the rest of the U.S.? Like I said, one thing, the the guys, I mean, hats off to them, the officers here, officers in, in the port of Houston who are enforcing it, um, they're just really good at finding bugs for one thing. Um, they also um, have uh, that also – in Houston, I, I guess I don't know if this is true all over the country, but in Houston, like I said, they focused in on the project cargo, and it's one thing if you have a you know twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollar shipment of cargo in a container get turned around, you know you just put it back in the container, Hapag Lloyd or Maersk or MSC just takes it back, right? But when you have you know when you've chartered a vessel from Rotterdam. Um, you know, for a million dollars to get your, you know, 200 ton reactor vessel here. And now they tell you to turn it around. You got a real problem. And so it's, it's in addition to them, maybe finding more, it's just the scope of the scale of what they found has been bigger here. Um, and, uh, it may be happening in other ports. I've just heard most, and I know it does happen in other ports as well. It's just, it's happened a lot here. And I've been here, so that's you know how I've been dealing with it. Well, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted uh, any more information on either your practice or this issue, where could they go? I guess they could uh, go to our website at uh, GJA Trade Law um, or I guess they can call they can call uh, my number. Uh, I'll just give you my number right now, if that's okay. And yeah. I'm going to give you my cell number because that's what I'm answering at this point. I'm working from home. Uh, 713-253-1679. Um, the issue is the same across the, the state, across the country. And we one thing we have been able to do is we actually have worked out. Uh, we have got basically a team on the ground in Altamira, Mexico now that we worked with. Uh, two, three times to help uh, undo, remedy some some bad, some some issues where some shipments that were exported from the United States. Um, and we've got and we've had good luck with that. So the, the issue you have is one of time versus cost. Uh, probably the cheapest thing to do is to ship everything back to your port of origin you know, in most cases, that's going to be the case because you're going to, you know, your packer can do it. You've got 
whatever. You've just got more resources there. However, in some cases, uh, especially with project cargo, you've got to have the stuff today or next week or some bigger contract is going to fall through and you've got a much bigger problem. In which case, you know, uh, Mexico has worked out well for Houston. It's a two day sail to Mexico versus about a month, month and a half back to Europe or even longer to Asia. Guard, this has been a, a actually a fascinating look at a, a lawyer, you, who do work uh, after the compliance failure occurs and what the cost can be, what the steps you have to take, and how even uh, in your position as counsel, you're co- counseling clients that uh, they need to have a compliance program in place. So uh, th- I wanted to thank you, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I've linked to the K2 Intelligence FIN website and then two resources, a white paper and a client alert that they put out around the FINs and paper. So check those out in the show notes. This presentation of the FCPA Compliance Report has been a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is also a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to visiting with you again soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.